Uh, We are in Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Matthew chapter 25, the Olivet Discourse, part six. Can you believe it's been a six-part study so far? Uh, And this will be our final study on the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' last sermon, uh, last sermon to his disciples there, uh, as it's a day away from his betrayal there on Passion, uh, Passion Week. So, Matthew 25. Two guys were walking through the woods when they came across a big, deep hole. Wow, one of them says, that sure looks deep. Sure does. Toss a few pebbles in there and and see how deep it is. So they picked up a few pebbles and threw them down in there. No noise. Geez, that is really deep. Here, throw throw one of these big rocks down in there. It'll make some noise. So they grabbed a, a rock the size of a football and tossed it in. No noise. They looked at each other in amazement. One gets a determined look on his face and says, Hey, over there in in the weeds, there's a railroad tie. Help me carry it over here and and we'll toss that sucker in. Surely it'll make some noise. The two men drug the heavy tie over to the hole and tossed it in and waited and waited and no sound came. Suddenly, out of the woods nearby, a goat appears running like the wind. It rushes and charges towards the two men right past them. Does a perfect swan dive right into the hole. The two men are astonished at what they'd just seen. Then out of the woods comes a farmer who spots the men and ambles over. Hey, have you guys seen a goat come this way? You bet we did. It was the craziest thing we ever saw. It came running at us like crazy and just jumped in this hole. Nah, says the farmer. That wasn't my goat. My goat was tied to a a railroad tie. (laughs) Well, today we're going to be studying something about goats and bottomless pits, but as funny as that story was, the story in uh, in, in Revelation, but Matthew chapter uh, 25 is, uh, we we come to the goats and the sheep judgment time. And uh, to get an understanding of where this takes place in our eschatology timeline or end of times timeline, Uh, We're going to look at the outline of Revelation. You know, in the past few weeks, I've kind of been doing a timeline like this with my hands. I feel like a Mickey Mouse clock, you know. But but today we're going to just do a quick look through, breeze through of the book of Revelation. So keep your fingers in Matthew 24. We're going to get into it and we're going to dig in. But we're also going to just look at Revelation real quick. So flip over there. It's the last book of the Bible. And if you look there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we have what is called the divine outline. Okay, the divine outline of the book of Revelation. When Jesus tells John the Revelator, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So the book of Revelation is divided into three uh, categories, although it does have 22 chapters, but the first uh, section are the things that John has seen. The second section are the things which are, and the third section are the things that will take place after this. 
And so in chapter one of Revelation, we see the things that John has seen. As John is shown, revealed Jesus. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about. It's an exciting book to study, but you know, we're not looking for the Antichrist and we're not looking for, you know, giant earthquakes and things like that. What we're looking for is Jesus. And that's who we really want to be shown. And so, but John was a disciple. John was a man who'd seen Jesus face to face. In fact, in John, first John chapter one, verse four, John says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, Jesus, that life was manifested to us and we've seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and manifested to us. So John is a guy who talked about, I knew Jesus. I saw him with my own eyes. I'm an eyewitness of him risen from the dead and ascending into heaven. I'm a, wit- I'm a witness of the miracles. My hands have touched him. I've gone camping with him. I've gone fishing with him. I've eaten the fish that he's cooked. I'm a witness and I've experienced Jesus. And so John does that. He writes down the things that he's seen. And really that thing is more of a person, the person of Jesus. That's what chapter one is about, the revelation of Jesus. The second section of revelation in the divine outline are the things which are. And in Revelation chapters two and three, we find seven letters to seven different churches And we see that it's a representation of the church age. And so the things which are, are the church age. Now, the word church appears 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. After that, there's no word for church. Uh, There's no mention, uh, there's mentioning, but the, the name church is not used. An interesting thing that you can take it or leave it, is that each one of these churches appears to be a representation of a certain area of church history. It's kind of like a panoramic picture. You guys have that new setting on your digital camera, the panoramic picture. Each one of the churches that Jesus writes a letter to is a time in church history. And let's just take a look at that real quick. The first letter in Revelation chapter 2, hopefully you're there, is to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus can be a a picture of the early church, okay, Uh, up to 70 AD. Now, 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the church was doing pretty good. But by that 40th year, Jesus writes a letter and says, you've left your first love. Isn't that crazy that only 40 years after Jesus ascended and in the midst of you know, the gifts being used like an incredible way and these apostles running around on the earth that people had begun to leave their first love, their love of Jesus, just goes to show you we can never rely on church tradition to point us to how we should worship Jesus or function as a church. But we should always point to the word of God to how we should function in the book of Acts. <laughs> Because we should be looking like the book of Acts, guys. So 
Ephesus, the early church up to 70 AD. Then you have Smyrna, uh, the root word there is myrrh, which speaks of a fragrant oil that when uh, it's ripped off the bark of a tree, the, the, the tree of this, excuse me, the bark of this acacia tree is ground and the more it's crushed, the more of this oil comes out that's fragrant, okay? And it's a picture of the persecuted church in the second and third centuries, They were being persecuted. They were being ground. And the more they were being ground by the Romans uh, and and persecuted for Jesus, the more this sweet-smelling aroma came out to Jesus because they wouldn't deny their faith. It's interesting. Out of the seven churches that these letters are written to, five of them have corrections or spankings from Jesus. Two of them don't. And Smyrna is one of the churches that has no correction, but only commendation from Jesus. Because when we're persecuted, you know, we cease to sin. You know, we're refined in those times of persecution. Not completely cease to sin, but, you know, we're purified uh, during those times of persecution. And so was Smyrna in the second and third century there. The, The third church that we see is the church in Pergamum or Pergamos. And Pergamos, it's just interesting to look at the 4th and 6th century compromising church under Constantine. When the church there, uh, Constantine, a Roman general, recruited a bunch of Christians to fight for his army, saying that God told, told him to conquer in the name of Jesus. And so he got this big army to start fighting his battles full of Christians. And so Constantine basically ended the persecution of Christians by Rome. But what he did was adapt all of the pagan rituals of Rome and made them kind of Christian-y. Such as Christmas was uh, known as Saturnalia. You know, it was a pagan holiday that he turned into Christ's Mass. You know, Easter was this big holiday about Ishtar and just this strange, you know, holi- this strange holiday that the Romans celebrated since the Babylonian times, and he turned it to, um, you know, a time to celebrate the resurrection, and it began to creep, compromising into the church, and they, you know, became lukewarm. Then we have the church in Thyatira. Just interesting, you know, it's just the next stage in church history is the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. And if you look at the name Thyatira, it's two Greek words that mean continual sacrifice. And you know, I love the Catholics. I really do. Just like I love the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Calvary Chapelites, you know. But one problem with the doctrine in the Catholic Church is, and one of many, and you know, I'm not bashing on the Catholics because, man, when we see problems here at Calvary Chapel, we need to deal with them and we need to expose them right away. But that is that mass, and you can look it up in, uh, in the, uh, the catechism, mass is a continual offering of Jesus in bodily form on the altar again. And he is slain again on the altar in a bloodless fashion by the priests. And you know what that is, you guys? That is a false system of worship. Because we see in the book of Hebrews that Jesus died once for the sins of all. It's, it's in Hebrews multiple times that he died once 
for the sins of the world. And that while he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. The, the blood that I shed here and now is sufficient for such a thing as forgiving sins and cleansing consciences from wickedness. And so uh, just interesting that in the timeline, uh, you know, Catholicism fits in there good with the letter that's written there uh, to Thyatira. <clears throat> then we have Sardis, interesting thing. Sardis is a representation of the Protestant Reformation of about the 1500s. Uh, a beautiful time when men stood up to have the Bible in their own hands and in the midst of persecution, in the midst of dying at the stake, men copied translations into their own languages and stood up for uh, the teaching of grace, salvation through, uh, by grace through faith. And you got neat men like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Huxley and uh, you've got, uh, you know, the Czech reformers and all of these incredible guys, Calvin. Uh, neat men who started out well, you know, they started out translating Bibles into their languages and they started out with a great cause. But we see the, the letter there to Sardis is that they had a name that they were, that they were strong, but really they'd become uh, weak. And if you look at it, all of these, and that word is denominations, and if you look at it, we've got Calvin, uh, you know, um, we've got Calvinists, we've got Lutherans, you know, we've got all the, the denominations that come from the Methodists. All of those things are great names and names of strength from their beginning history. This can be Calvary Chapel too, you know, uh, but we can fall away from what these men were dying for. And that was that every one of us would own the word of God, not only in our library, but in our hearts and that we would be obedient to it, that we would live and that we would die for the word, just like these reformers did back in the 1500s. Uh, the next two churches are Philadelphia and Laodicea, and they both, uh, they kind of encapture the whole of church history. You know, you have those that are faithful in each one of those times, like the church in Philadelphia, but I also believe the Philadelphian church is a representation of the faithful church in the end days. And I say that because in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, there's a promise to the church in Philadelphia, the faithful church, that if they keep his command to persevere, he will keep the faithful church from the, excuse me, from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So there's a faithful church in the end days. And I think that that's not the church as a building, but it's people who are part of the church of Jesus, you know? And so there's some in this room, there's some at Eastside, there's some over at the Ascent, there's some in the Lutheran church that are faithful to his word right now. And they're going to be kept from the tribulation period that's going to come upon the whole world. And then the final church that the letter to the Laodicean church, the lukewarm and we see the lukewarm all throughout church history. Even today, there are lukewarm in this place. Jesus says, I wish you were hot for me, or I wish you were cold for me, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And there's a correction there to the church in Laodicea that, that, we, need to, that we need to receive, uh, that we need to receive the fire and become hot for Jesus once again. So just an interesting thing that the things that are 
In the divine outline, the church age is a panoramic picture of church history. And currently we are living in that time. But the third part of the divine outline, what is it? The things that will take place after this. After what? After the church age. And look at chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation. After these things, after the church age, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. I believe what we read here in chapter four, verse one is uh, the Lord showing John the rapture of the church, that after the church age, there will be a moment, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 tells us, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, uh, the trumpet of God that John tells us, the, the Lord's voice sounds like a trumpet, that the Lord's going to say, come up here, and he's going to be in the throne room of God. That's exactly what's going to happen during the catching up of the church or the rapture or the harpazo that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. You guys should have these verses down by now after the sixth week. So chapter 4, verse 1, John is, is come up here and immediately he's in the throne room. And then chapters 4 and 5 are two chapters where we see a group of people in heaven that can only be the church, okay? We're going to see them sing songs such as, you've redeemed us to the Lord by your blood. You've given them, you know, we see that they have crowns. We see that they have thrones. We see that they're in robes of white. Uh, uh, and that among many things that points to them, promises and rewards that are only given to the church. And they're in church They're before the throne and they're worshiping the Lord and they're singing with billions of angels. An awesome time there in chapters four and five while the church is in heaven. And so while the church is in heaven, chapter six through 19 is the tribulation period. It's a seven year period where God's wrath is poured out on a Christ rejecting world primarily so that Israel will come to know Jesus as their Messiah like they always should have. You can read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26 uh, to see that the whole part of that seven-year time of wrath, it's a time of chastening and correction so that they'll come to their senses and see that Jesus, the one that they crucified, was their Messiah the whole time. During the tribulation period, there will be three series of judgments, each increasing in severity. It'll start out with the seal judgment in chapter six. And we're not talking art, 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 balancing a ball on your nose. That's not the seal judgment. It's seals as on a scroll. And there are seven seals on a scroll that Jesus has, and he's going to peel away each one. And as he peels away each one, a different judgment will come upon the world. The seventh seal judgment leads to the first trumpet judgment, And if you have a middle schooler in band class, uh, you have an understanding of how that could be a judgment. Oh, never mind. You're really good at it. (laughs) I was a saxophone player, so I can, you know, I squeaked and squawked a little bit myself. Uh, You know, so uh, there will be these trumpet judgments. 
And then uh, finally in, in, uh, in the tribulation will be the bowl judgments. And so each of those judgments increases in severity. But halfway through that tribulation period, you guys should know by now from Matthew chapter 24, verse 16, that the abomination of desolations is going to take place where the Antichrist is going to stand in the temple. He's going to bring an end to sacrifices and offerings, and he's going to demand that he be worshipped. And it's at that point that the Jews will be like, "Uh uh-uh, we were starting to sense that something was funky about this guy. Let's get out of here. And they're going to run away from him. And while they're running away to the wilderness, he's going to come after them and try to kill them. But they're going to run out into the wilderness to a place prepared by God where he's going to feed them for three and a half years or the rest of that seven-year period, okay? And so um, that begins the great tribulation period where not only is Satan you know, taking sucker punches at the end of his game, you know, trying to win. But also, um, you know, there will be supernatural and natural phenomenons like the world has never seen that are going to cause such destruction on this world. Uh, By the end of chapter 19, right at the end, there is the glimmer of hope, though, as everything looks like the world is going to just end horribly. And Jesus says it would if he doesn't come back. But at the end of chapter 19, we see him come back. Let's hear. Okay, no, nobody's excited. He's going to come back. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he's going to judge the nations and he's going to rule and reign from there in Jerusalem. And it is going to be an awesome, awesome time as he comes in the clouds with his church and he wipes out the Antichrist and his army and he comes and he sets his feet in Jerusalem to rule and reign from David's throne. That leads to chapter 20. Okay, now right after the second coming where he comes to earth with us, sets his feet on the earth, is where we're at today in Matthew chapter 25. The sheep and the goats judgments. Jesus is here on earth and he's going to judge two different types of people. Okay, so that's where we're at. But right after where we're at comes a 1000 year period in chapter 20. The whole chapter deals with it called the millennial reign or the 1000 year reign of Christ. And here's a little synopsis of the chapter. Satan is bound for a thousand years. He's bound with a chain and he's cast into the bottomless pit. So for a thousand years, there will be no Satan on the earth to deceive the nations uh, into sin. So can can you only imagine what the last a thousand years would have been like without Satan running around? We, We still have sinful natures. So things would have been not ideal, but Satan would have been, wouldn't have been here. So that would have been awesome. Um, so Satan is bound for a thousand years. Jesus rules from David's throne in Jerusalem for that thousand years. We'll be there as well, uh, ruling with Jesus. <clears throat> the planet, now here's where it starts to get, this is biblical. This is not Rory trying to be all, whoa, someone bring their lava lamp, you know, or something, you know. I'm not trying to be weird, but this is biblical. This is end end of times biblical study. People will have survived the tribulation. They would have been called lambs by Jesus, not goats, but lambs. We'll study that today. And they'll stay here on the earth during that thousand year period. Okay. Now, a lot of things are going to happen. There's going to be no more war. There's going to be no more blindness or deafness or birth defects. Um, People are going to live longer. Uh, Up to 130 years old is going to seem young. Okay. But also the Bible tells us 
these sheep are going to start repopulating the planet. They're going to have kids. They're going to have jobs. They're going to rebuild houses. I'm not trying to be weird. This is biblical. Okay. And Jesus is going to rule and reign on the planet. Okay. Now at the end of a thousand years, the planet has become pretty populated again. People are going to need to make their own decision for Jesus. It's just like us. If you were raised in the church, these kids that are born in the millennial reign, you know, they're going to, their parents are on fire sheep, you know, they're on fire for Jesus and let's go to Jerusalem and worship Jesus. And for a couple generations, that seems pretty cool. But then there's the kids that they're like, who is this Jesus? I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I got a job at a gas station and a car, you know, I don't want to go over there, you know. And so they're going to start becoming lukewarm and hardened to the Lord in their heart. And at the end of this 1000 years, Satan is going to be released and he's going to lead a rebellion. He's going to deceive people and they're going to follow him. And this is where these people need to make a decision on their own. Not their parents who love Jesus, but they need to make their own decision in a perfect world to follow Jesus. And we see that there are going to be many that won't. And so Satan is going to lead them to Jerusalem at the end of Revelation 20 and kind of follow along with your eyes. And he's going to try and take Jerusalem and kill all of us. And and the Lord's not even going to let it begin to happen. He's just going to consume them. It's over. It's done. And then he's going to cast Satan into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. So that's the millennial reign. It's a whole long study. It's hard to do it in 10 minutes, you know, but that's a little snippet. So if you have questions, ask me or get online and start doing some research yourself. Read the Bible. Mostly that's the big part. Revelation chapter 20. It's the millennial reign at the end of revelation. Chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment. This is a very sobering time in the scriptures. Probably the most sobering and sad time in all of scriptures where all of the dead who aren't believers in Jesus Christ, all of the dead from Adam's time up to now will be brought up out of um, Hades and will stand before God's holy white throne. And two books will be open. We read about at the end of revelation chapter 20, one will be a book of all of their works And they're going to stand before God and say, oh, I was so good. I was this, I was that. And God's going to say, you were not good. You were not good. You were not good. You might've thought you were good. You weren't good. And Isaiah tells us even our best goodness on our best day is filthy rags before the Lord because he is really good. And so people are going to, oh, okay. So maybe I wasn't that good, but you know, and so there's another book there and he's going to open up that book and it's called the book of life. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Very sobering, very sad time. The most sorrowful time in all of humanity when we'll see friends and family that rejected Jesus cast into the lake of fire. That's bad news, but there's good news. That is that this doesn't have to happen to our friends and to our family. If they will just receive Jesus into their lives as their Lord, as their master, as their savior, if they'll receive the work that he did on that cross as a ransom for their sins, as he sat on a sub, as a substitute on that cross, their sins will be forgiven and God will remember them no more. And he will write their name in the Lamb's book of life. But we see by this point, 
in the whole grand plan, nobody's name there will be in the book of life. They'll have already been with Jesus. So a very sad time. Revelation chapter 21, we see that during the great white throne judgment, all of heaven and earth burned away. Second Peter chapter three tells us the earth is going to burn away with the fervent heat and the elements are going to be dissolved. But God has been spending 2000 years creating a new heaven and a new earth for us. And it's going to be incredible. Not only that, there's a new city on that earth called the New Jerusalem. And when we do a study on that town, you guys, your jaws are going to drop open. It's going to be incredible. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter in the book, is kind of the epilogue. And it just tells us what this new heaven and earth are like. There's no need for a sun because Jesus is going to be the light on this new planet. There's going to be such joy. There will not, you know, he'll wipe away every tear from our eye. Uh, You know, the the river of life will be coming down out of his throne. The tree of life will be, you know, kind of a, a, like a big pillar over this river. It's beautiful. Man, if you haven't read Revelation, hopefully that will help you understand it a little more as you read it. And so where we're at today, push the rewind button. Okay. Where we're at today, Jesus has come back to the earth with us. He set his feet on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14. Incredible stuff is happening. And there are some people who are still living on the earth. And so he brings all of these Gentiles to stand before him uh, to be judged for their works during the tribulation period. That's where we are. Hopefully you haven't blown a gasket. I know that I have. Maybe we should just say amen and get out of here, huh? Um, or let's dig in a little bit. Part six of the Olivet Discourse, we're almost done. Roll up your sleeves, put on your hiking boots, because uh, we're going to probably get dirty a little bit. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you come to came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, we did. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So three questions as you go through this, you've got the when, and we've established the when, after the second coming, before the millennial reign. We've got the who, four different peoples here. We've got nations mentioned, sheeps, goats, and my brethren. Let's look at the first group in verse 32, the word nations, the nations will be gathered before him and before that throne sitting on David's throne, they'll all be gathered before him. Uh, And so let's just mark that word nations. That word nations is ethnos, which speaks of ethnic groups and Gentiles. Okay. It's specifically non-Jews that are gathered before him. Germans, Italians, Asians, Africans, Americans, you know, they're all brought there. Now, the word nations is in its neuter gender, okay? So it's actually the people of that nation that will be judged. Notice the word them there in verse 32. That word them is specifically masculine. In other words, every ethnic group will be gathered, but men will be judged as individuals, You won't be right in God's sight because you have the red, white, and blue on you, you know, or because you got red and black or whatever, venom, lack, I don't know, something like that. But whatever your flag is, that's not what matters. What matters is what you yourself did for these, the brethren. Um, And so these, these nations are come, they give account, they're divided into three groups, the sheeps and the goats and the brethren. And uh, it's important to note here that not every person who survives that tribulation period will get into this kingdom on earth. Well, right, Rory, that's kind of unfair. Well, it's been said, if you were to cross a goat and a lamb, you would get some sort of animal that eats tin cans and produces still wool. And that's not what the Lord has in mind during the tribulation period. He wants the righteous to inherit this kingdom. These sheep and these goats are going to be separated. And man, I kind of like that. You know, I grew up on a cattle ranch. It's been a little while since I've swung a loop, but I miss it. My prayer is that revival comes to the ranchers in this area. But, you know, when you're out there and you're sorting your cows, you're sorting your heifers from your steers and your bulls and all that, you know, you've got some guys on cutting horses and those horses, man, they are so quick. If a calf tries to get by them, boom get back over there. Boom. Get back over there. You know, let them buy, let them buy, but boom, get back over there. You know, uh, or you've got a gate and you're opening this gate and letting those guys through opening this gate and letting those ones through. That's what the Lord is doing here. You know, he's bringing the, all of the nations and Daniel chapter 12 tells us that this judgment period is going to take 45 days. Isn't that crazy? How specific Bible prophecy is 45 days of all of these nations coming before him and one by one, he's sorting. Sheep's over here, goats over here. Did I say sheeps? That ain't right. I think we all know why. And so there's this order and how are they, how's it determined which one's which? Who's a sheep? Who's a goat? They all kind of look alike. You know, if they're all out in a field way out there, like, 
there's a whole bunch of sheep out there in that field, you know. But really, when you get close, you've got, you know, these little guys with funky horns and weird coats, you know. And then you've got these nice, white, fluffy little clouds, you know, with nice, you know, still stinky, but nice. You know, but from a distance, they all look the same. When they come up before the Lord, the Lord looks into their hearts. He looks into their actions. And they're going to be judged based on what they did to his brothers during that tribulation period. Okay, that brings us to the next people group that are here. We've got the brothers, verse 40. And uh, is it talking about brothers diner over here? Man, you were mean to them during the tribulation. I don't think so. But in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, we see Jesus has four brothers. You know, he's got uh, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. You know, is that who Jesus is talking about? You were mean to my brothers back in the day, you bullies. You know, probably not talking about little Yimmy, his little brother, you know, um, in the physical world. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, tells us that Jesus became a man and was tempted just like we are. And he knows what we're going through. He's sympathetic towards our, you know, our fleshly natures. And because of that, he's not ashamed to be called our brother. You know, if we're in Christ, you know, don't get all weird about it. You know, he's our brother. He doesn't call us servants or slaves anymore, but we have a a special relationship with him. Uh, Then you've got the fact that Jesus is a Jew of the line of Judah. You know, he's he's David's uh, great, 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 great grandson. You know, and so also his brothers are the Jews. And so we can, we can understand that the people who were treated nicely, these brothers, are Jews during the tribulation, the 144,000, um, uh, and also, you know, the nation as a whole, Jesus' brothers. But also in Revelation chapter 12, we see that Satan is so mad at the Jews, he tries to kill all the Jews, but he also goes after the seed of the Jews. Christianity, you know, we're stem, we stem from Judaism. And so basically these people are going to be judged as sheep or goats based on how kind these actions towards Jews and Christians uh, during the tribulation period. Not only being nice to these, but being nice to the least of these, you know, and, and that word least speaks of small in rank. Um, or a word that I wrote in my handwriting that I can't read anymore. Dignity. There we go. Pignity? That doesn't seem right. You know, uh, these people are small in rank and dignity. Maybe pignity too. Uh, and man, you know, it is a word for us today that in the church, sometimes we like to brush off the people that are small in rank, small in stature, perhaps. We're awful nice to those six foot four guys, aren't we? You know, uh, you know but the Lord desires us not to look you know, at the outward appearance of these, uh, and, and, and in this context, the outward appearance of the Jews and the, and the tribulation saints there in the tribulation. So uh, finally, uh, we want to look at how is it that these specific deeds, uh, you know, gave these guys the title of sheep. What's that all about? Are we saved by works? It seems here that these guys are saved by their works, that they were nice little people, and that's what got them into the millennial reign. Uh, And so what we have to do right now is retreat to the light of Scripture in order to understand the things that seem to be in the dark. 
You know, go to what you do understand in the Bible is what you've got to do whenever something seems complicated. So let's go to what we do understand. The Bible is abundantly clear that salvation is not based on works that we do, but that salvation comes by grace or a gift from God through faith, through our believing in him. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Here's how good you are. <laughs> you think you're a good person? You know, hey, Rory, are you a good person? Well, yeah, I mean, never murdered anybody. Oh, no, I really haven't. Um, you know, here's how good Rory really is, okay? It's written. There is none righteous, or you could read it, there's none right. (laughs) That ain't right. That's right. There ain't none right. There is none right, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no Not one, not one. Jump down to verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We're going to read that word justified a few times. It means to be declared righteous in God's sight. Another way to think of it is um, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Isn't that cool that God can look at us just as if we had never sinned before? Okay, so by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, his righteousness that we might be just, or that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at verse 27. Where is the boasting then? It's excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We conclude a man is right in God's sight apart from being just a good person, okay? It's by faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, you ought to own it. Uh, It's by grace that we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man boast. It's like Paul in Romans said, where's the boasting? If we were gonna stand before God and our salvation was based on our works, we'd be just bragging before God. 
Look how good I was. I was a Boy Scout. You know, I sold cookies all the day of my life. You know, I worked at a car wash and I put extra bug juice on the front of this one lady's car. You know, I am such a good person, you know, and, and we're just like boasting about ourselves in front of God. And again, our righteousness, our everything good that we've done, it's like a filthy, smelly, nasty rag uh, before God. Also, if we were to boast before God and he was to let us into heaven because of our good works, then he would be a debtor to us and he would owe us something. God owes no man anything. Man owes God everything. And like Galatians says, if righteousness came by just being a good person, then Jesus died in vain. There was no reason for him to come as a man and die on the cross. If we little goody choo-choos could have just got it done by ourselves. He knew we couldn't do it ourselves and that he needed to come and ransom us from the wages of our sin. So because these people were kind to God, to Jesus's brothers, these sheep, doesn't mean that their kindness earned them salvation. Their works were not the basis of their salvation, but rather the evidence that they were already saved. They weren't saved by their works, but those works were evidence that they already were saved. Now, why do these specific deeds that we read about, let's look at them again, you know, giving people food, giving people drink, taking strangers in, clothing the naked, um, visiting the sick and visiting the prisons. How are these specific deeds evidence of real faith? These specific ones. I mean, a lot of guys are out there at Christmas time dressed like Santa ringing the little bell outside of Kmart, you know, or a lot of guys are out there doing humanitarian efforts, you know, down in Haiti right now. You know, but why is it that these specific deeds uh, are something special during the tribulation period? Well, the context of the sheep and the goat judgment is it takes place right after the great tribulation. Okay, this is happening right after these seven years. And during these seven years, there will be a satanic hatred of the Jewish people. Satan will try to exterminate the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like he always has. He's always tried to kill the Jews. You know, uh, he, he tried to do it through the Holocaust with Adolf Hitler. You know, and he's going to try to do it again in a massive way that's going to make the Holocaust look like a playground. In fact, during the tribulation period, Jeremiah chapter 30 calls it the time of Jacob or Israel's trouble. That's what that seven years is. It's a time of Israel's trouble. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 says two thirds of all the Jews living there are going to be executed. Two thirds of the Jews will be killed. Under these circumstances in the tribulation, the only individual who's going to feed and clothe these Jews or imprison these Jews uh, are going to be those who've not bowed the knee to the Antichrist. They still have a heart after God and understanding that the Antichrist is not that God. So in the context of the great tribulation, these works are proof that those in the tribulation these helpers are Gentile believers helping out the Jews, these nations. 
And it's kind of cool because you look in John chapter 10, verse 14, it's the I am the good shepherd passage. It's kind of fitting with where we're at. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the father knows me, even so, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So how cool that during the tribulation period, these, these sheep, these Gentiles, they're just part of the flock of Israel and they're loving on and serving on these Jews. Um, as they're being persecuted, there are also the goats in this context. Does anybody really like goats? I mean, let's get real. Goat cheese is actually pretty good. Um, that was just a little pit stop. <laughs> uh, these goats didn't treat the Lord's brothers well because they didn't know the king. They didn't know the king and they didn't have a love for his brothers. They worshiped the beast and they sided with the beast or the antichrist and were part of the hatred towards these brothers. And so it's here at the sheep and the goats judgment where the wheat and the tares parable and the parable of the dragnet, you guys know it, it's where it's fulfilled. They're separated, they're plucked out right here. Now, verse 36 is very inspiring, is it not? I was naked. And you clothed me, you know, uh, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me, you know, it's very inspiring. It wants us, makes us want to be part of all sorts of humanitarian efforts. And sadly for some, it makes you feel like you have to be part of all humanitarian efforts. But the context of the outpouring of love here was towards Jesus brothers in fact, in scripture, where you see these great outpourings of, of uh, financial and material giving, it's to the church or it's to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If our brother needs something, the Proverbs tells us, and we have it in our hand, you know, don't tell him to go away and come back later. Give it to him if our brother needs it. Now, I'm not saying that we're never to love on people that are not Christians, that are poor and destitute and without food. But the command is towards our brothers. You know, we have to be led when it comes to the men and women of the world. And man, and this is very applicable for today in Prineville. Highest unemployment rate. I heard once, you know, like top four in the nation, but definitely highest in Oregon. Uh, how applicable this is as so many are coming. We get people almost every day coming to the church asking for money and we as elders pray over this, you know, if they're non-Christians and they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, then we pray harder, but we're more likely to give to the brothers who, who need it. You know, that's, that's the biblical principle. For instance, Acts chapter three, Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He held out his palms and asked for alms. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You have to sing it or I'm not going to hear it. Rise up and walk. Okay. Now, Peter and John had just come from a time and it gets more, it gets 
better uh, in, later on in the couple chapters later. But in Acts chapter 2, towards the end, people were giving money to this communal living of the church back then. They were selling their property and giving it to the church. The church was brand new and the church was rich. Uh, there was wealth there within the church. Peter and John had money. Peter and John just didn't have money for this guy right now. Okay. For 40 years, we're told they walked by this guy. 40 years. Jesus walked by this little lame man. Why didn't Jesus heal? Aren't we just supposed to, you know, we're to be led by the spirit. And Jesus knew that some, however many years later, Peter and John were going to come by and this man was going to be an incredible day of glory to the Lord. If you know the context of the scriptures, you know that it ended up being an incredible day of salvation. Okay. Now he, he had Jesus to give them and that's the most important thing. You know, it doesn't do that much good to give somebody a loaf of bread when they're going to hell. And so our priority in the church is giving them Jesus. And then we pray. And if the Lord says today is a day to give to him bread. But the reality of the scriptures is if a man doesn't work, a man doesn't eat. And even in this economy where there's no jobs, a man can still work and a man must work. And that's something we look at here in this church. Is this man somebody or is this woman somebody who's putting an effort into things or are they just wanting the free handouts of the church? You know, it's the Lord's money and we want to be good stewards of it. Now, I hope you're not getting me wrong. This is a church that has a soup kitchen to the community, you know, and right now the Lord is telling us to continue with this soup kitchen. There may be a time where the Lord says, all right, we've been reaching out to this person. He's getting hard hearted and, and it's time to stop because being hungry is something that's going to drive this man to me once and for all. We have to be led. That's the thing. Every day we get on our knees before the Lord and we want to be walking in the center of his will because the context of Matthew chapter 25, it's to brothers and the context of Matthew 25 is after the tribulation. Something just to pray about. We just got to be led. You know, I want my money to just be Jesus's. I want my resources to be Jesus's. I'm a distribution house. I'm not a warehouse where I keep it all to myself. You know, I'm Lord, where do you want it to go? You know, um, but the biblical, biblically we see it goes to the people in the church who need it first. And how neat we've had so many people coming in, you know, homeless and poor and broken. And we'll sit there going, the church might not be able to pay rent this month. Rory might not be able to get paid this month. Very well. Right now it's looking like it's not going to happen. So we can't promise to give you money, but we can give you Jesus. We can give you eternal life. And man, if you receive Jesus, we will fight for you and we will give for you and we will help you. That's our heart here. And so something else to notice, the sheep never even knew they were doing this stuff. When did we do this? When, when, when? He's like, 
you did it for me and you did it for my glory. The goats, if they did it, they did it for themselves and for their own glory, you know, but, but these guys, they just, their right hand didn't know what their left hand was doing. They were so just loving, serving Jesus that, man, I didn't even know I was doing it. And that's a heart of a servant right there. Heart of a servant doesn't need praise or glory from men. Now, James tells us that taking care of the poor, it's a huge part, or the poor believers, it's a huge part of the Christian life. Isaiah 58 tells us that when we fast, that we're to save the food that we would normally eat during our fast and we're to give it to our brothers who don't have food. You know, um, interesting that we sung that song that uh, the Lord clothes, you know, the Lord clothes the flowers of the field. He brings the clothes to believers. Also visiting those in prison is an incredible thing that Christians do for one another. And visiting those that are sick. Uh, in Second Timothy, Paul writes that Onesiphorus was a man that visited him regularly in prison and wasn't afraid, wasn't ashamed that he was in prison. And so, man, you might just make a little note. Who do I know that is a brother of mine that's in jail or in, in prison? And man, we should schedule to go and see them. 46, we're closing here. These goats will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. The Bible does not teach annihilation of those who are not his. Some people believe that, you know, hell is just a, a second when you're put into a furnace and incinerated for eternity. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches everlasting punishment for those who are disobedient to the gospel. That's sad. And knowing that should compel us to preach Jesus to every friend and every family member that we have. Let's go ahead and put our Bibles away. The encouraging thing of all this is that the righteous, where do they go? Into everlasting life. And today, as, as Tom comes up to lead us in closing songs, today you may have walked in through those doors like a goat. You're a goat. And, and only you and the Lord knows if that's you. I don't know that. But you know. And maybe right now, just ask the Lord, Lord, am I a goat? Because I'm really not sure. Am I a hybrid, you know, a little bit of steel wool coming out there? You know, Lord, show me. You know, the Bible says to examine ourselves daily to see whether we're of the faith. Lord, am I a goat? Am I unrighteous? Am I going to be sent away into everlasting punishment in hell? Forever and ever and ever and ever Guys, that doesn't have to be you. You can make the choice. You can make the choice right now if that's going to be you. And today, as we just close, in your heart today, you can bow your knee to Jesus. You can bow your knee to the one who loves you and gave himself for you and will serve you. Man, what an incredible person to give your heart to.
and you can surrender your life to him. Come under his lordship. Believe not only that he exists, but that he's God. And his death on the cross was an atonement or paid the ransom for your sins. And through his blood and his blood alone, you're saved. And right now, you can just put your trust in Jesus, that your sins are forgiven, that you're made as white as snow, that you're a new creation, the Bible says. But if you resist Jesus today, Hebrews tells us that tomorrow, it'll be easier to resist him. Tuesday, it'll be easier to resist him. Wednesday, it'll be even easier to resist him. And your heart will get harder and harder and harder. But today, if you hear his voice, bow the knee to him. How easy to bow the knee to someone who suffered excruciating pain, dying naked and open on a Roman road, on a Roman cross. That's the guy I want to give my life to. And I plead with you with all that is within me to give your life to him as well today too. And I'm just going to ask you if if that's you today. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. But I am just going to ask you to respond. Just respond to what we studied today. Respond to God by lifting up your hand and just acknowledging, Lord, that's me. I'm a goat, but I want to be a sheep. I was lost, but today I'm found. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.